Well, all right. Hey, 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 everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Um, great day to tune in because we're starting a new series today on the Gospel of John. And so we're going to go all the way through this Gospel, all 21 chapters. It's going to take us a long time to get through it, uh, probably a couple of years, although it'll be broken up with some other series here and there as well. Um, but today as we dive in, um, I really only want to cover the first five verses. That's all the farther we're going to get today uh, as we start exploring what's known as the prologue to John. The prologue is the first 18 verses. Like I said, we're only getting through the first five today, um, but it sets up the story. It gives us some insight. It uh, introduces us to some key themes or key ideas so we kind of have an idea of what to expect as we jump in. Uh, now, I just got to give you a little bit of a warning. Uh, today's message, as well as the rest of the weeks in terms of this prologue, they may be a little academic for your taste, depending on who you are. You might really like that kind of stuff, um, because we got to talk about some words and what they mean and go to some different references, uh, but it's really important that we kind of grasp this to set a solid foundation for where we're going um, in the weeks to come. Um, and so we're going to jump right in. We've got a lot of ground to cover today. John chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 1 and just kind of unpack this thing as we go. So John 1, 1, we read this, that in the beginning, all right, we got to stop. Now, <laughs> I told you this is going to take a while. We're only three words in and we already have to pause. Um, we need to pause for a moment before we get any further and just look at the idea of context. So often whenever we approach Jesus or faith, Christianity, the Bible, the Gospels especially, we miss out on the context, and so we, we either miss Jesus entirely, we misunderstand, we misinterpret um, what's going on, uh, because we don't actually see Jesus in the, the account that's being told in the context that it was originally a part of. And, and uh, so often that leads to us kind of creating a, a fictional version of Jesus rather than the historical version of who he really was. And so depending on the context that you're in and, and what experience has been with faith, uh, kind of what circles you run in. It's really easy to turn Jesus into a lot of things. Some people want to turn Jesus into, you know, uh, you know, a, a new age philosopher, uh, that, like, but Jesus was not a philosopher. Now, certainly he said some things that had some great, like, philosophical insight, but he wasn't a philosopher. Jesus also wasn't a self-help guru. Like, some people want to turn him into that. Jesus says some things that will certainly help your life, but that's not who he was. Jesus was not a, like a social justice warrior. Although, I mean, Jesus for sure was about justice and, and helping the marginalized and the oppressed and the poor and fighting for them. Like he talked about that all the time, but that's not all that he was. He was not just someone who was only concerned about, you know, saving souls and forgiving sins. It's like, that's a part of it, but that's not all of it. You see, we take little bits and pieces and we don't understand the whole context of Jesus. We, we make it something, we make him something that he's not or only see a part of him. What we got to understand is first and foremost, Jesus was a first century Jew. That's who he was. Like Jesus was a first century Jewish man living and operating in a first century Jewish context, um, speaking primarily to a first century Jewish audience. And so we need to see him in that light to properly understand what's going on. Um, it's going to add layers and depth of meaning to the things that we read, especially as we explore John's gospel together. You know, just a couple of examples of this before we go any further is, you know, we, we read about things in the life of Jesus that we just brush over that have so much significance. Uh, so Jesus picking 12 disciples. Sometimes we may read that and go, okay, that's interesting. He picked 12 guys. Nice, cool, 12 is a good number, I guess. But it was more than just a random or arbitrary number. 
Jesus picks 12 disciples because there were 12 tribes of Israel, 12 tribes that make up the nation of Israel. And so Jesus, in choosing 12 disciples, what he was doing and saying and communicating how people would have understood him in his context would be that he was, uh, he was constituting a new Israel around himself. Uh, that Jesus would be what Israel was supposed to be. And just as there was 12 tribes of Israel, he would have 12 disciples. He's constituting a new people around himself. Or the account of Jesus' baptism. We read that and it's like, um, Jesus got baptized. What do I do with that? I don't know. I use it as a good example, I guess. Um, but there's so much more going on. So the account of Jesus' baptism, he goes into the waters of baptism. As soon as he comes through or out of the waters, he's led into the wilderness for 40 days. And while he's in the wilderness, we read that he's tempted by Satan. It's a testing period. Uh, and whenever we understand that in context, we go, oh my gosh, this makes so much sense. Israel, this formative story for them, they come through the waters of the Red Sea where they have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years where they are, are facing all kinds of temptations and trials and they, by the way, fail at it whereas Jesus succeeds in his testing in the wilderness. So baptism, 40 days, testing through the Red Sea, 40 years, testing, like there, there are layers to what Jesus is doing and communicating that so often we miss. We need to see him in his context. And when that happens, man, things light up about Jesus and the gospel and what he came to do. And so as we engage with John's gospel, we read uh, right off the bat, in the beginning. Now, if we're ignoring context, we might just think, well, it's a nice story. It's something that, you know, it's like once upon a time. It, he's just letting us know this is how things started. But to who he was writing to, the world that he was writing, the Jewish people in his audience, when they heard in the beginning, they would have instantly have thought of Genesis 1 in the creation account. When they hear in the beginning, they are automatically thinking, oh, creation, Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created. And that's John's intent. That's what he wants to spark in our minds as he writes this. Let's look at Genesis 1 together. Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, there's our phrase. So that's like the key phrase that's setting the whole thing off. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth, it was formless and empty and darkness this is an idea or a theme that's going to come up in John's gospel, the idea of darkness and light coming. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths and the spirit of God. Again, this is going to be a big idea in John's gospel is the role of the spirit, what the spirit does in the world, what the spirit does in people's lives. Uh, the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters and God said, let there be light and there was light. Again, major theme in John's gospel is light coming into the darkness. And so as soon as John opens up with in the beginning, he wants us to go, oh, wait, I've heard this story before. This sounds familiar. Genesis 1, 1 through 3. And he's tapping into all of these themes and ideas that are going to come up in his gospel. The idea of it being a new kind of creation, the idea of light coming into darkness, the idea of the role of God's spirit uh, in bringing about new life in people. John is setting things up for where he wants to take us. His original audience would have known that this was a creation account. So right off the bat, within the beginning, God wants us, or John wants us to see that this is a creation narrative. This is a creation account, and not just a creation account, but it is a new creation account. Like there's something new happening. It's a new creation. And so in, in, in the Genesis account, the God brings uh, he brings beauty, he brings order out of the chaos, out of the, uh, the, 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 um, the wild, the, 
the wasteland, tohu vavohu is the Hebrew turn of phrase. It's this wild wasteland that it makes it um, uninhabitable for human life and flourishing. And God brings beauty and order out of that so humanity can flourish. Uh, and then it's, it's dark and God speaks light into the darkness. And so with this new creation account, John wants us to see that, 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 that through Jesus, God is bringing beauty and order out of the chaos of our lives. Uh, that, that, that what was soil within the world and in our lives that wasn't a place where life could flourish, God brings beauty and order uh, and allows life to flourish. That, that as God spoke light into the darkness, so Jesus brings light into the darkness of the world. John wants us to see these ideas. That this is a story. This is going to be an account, John's gospel, of new creation. That he is trying to communicate the dawn of a new world with this phrase, in the beginning. Um, and so whenever we approach John's gospel and what we read, we need to read it in that light. That there's something, there's a new world, there's a new creation that's unfolding. See, so often when we read Jesus out of context, we miss so much of what is actually happening. We flatten out the gospel and we turn it into Hallmark cards and bumper stickers. And it's just this simple, hey, Jesus died for you, God loves you, yay! And that's true. Jesus died. God does love you. He, he like loves you so much. He gave his life for you, but there's so much more going on. There's so much that we miss out on. And so when we flatten it out like that, and we, when we miss these little things, um, it's easy to kind of just go, well, Jesus died and he saved me, but I'm just going to mope around and be a miserable human being, right? Like I know so many followers of Jesus, so many Christians who's just like, yeah, God saved me from my sins, but this world's horrible and things are so bad. So let me just kind of hunker down and just batten down the hatches and just wait for God to get me out of here. For God, to, you know, just waiting for Jesus to take me home. The world's gone to hell in a handbasket. My soul is saved. You know, I can't wait till I fly away. And it's just like, wait, 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 wait. We're missing this big, beautiful thing that God invites us into, that there is a new creation. New creation is here. The kingdom is here. Sin is defeated. Satan is defeated. Death is defeated. There is, there is life that is here in the present. There's freedom that is here. There's hope that is here. All of that is available in the here and now. Jesus has done something in the here and now. And we, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, we are the people that are supposed to recognize that and see the world that way. Like we, we are the people who are supposed to live like that is the reality. That we live like new creation is here. Now there's this paradox in the Christian faith. that uh, This belief that the new creation, the kingdom of God, uh, this new world, that it is here, but yet it's also coming. Like it's here, but at the same time it's not yet. And, and so there will be kind of a, a final revealing. There will be a time when that kingdom, that new creation is fully here. Don't, don't mistake that for thinking that it's not here now because it is. And we are supposed to live like that. As the church, as the people of God, as followers of Jesus, we live like there's been the dawn of a new world because there has been through Jesus. And so we don't just talk about it. We don't just you know, believe some things intellectually, but we live it out. We live out radical generosity and self-sacrificial love. Like we, we have so much generosity and love that honestly, if you're living the way of Jesus, your neighbors should get a glimpse of how much, how generous you are and the love that you have, and they should think you're kind of stupid. They should be like, that's just dumb. Who does that? And you're like, I know, 
but there's the dawn of a new world. This is what we're called to do. We, we fight for justice for people. When there is injustice, we make sure there's not injustice that we're contributing to, and we fight for people to have justice. We don't, we don't just talk about it. We don't just post about it. We don't just feel good being like, yay, I raised awareness. We, we actually go and do something about it. We speak up for the weak and for the voiceless and for the vulnerable. We love our enemies. We forgive people. Uh, we, we turn the other cheek. We are peacemakers. We actually do that as people who believe the new creation is here. We do these things. We actually live them out because we believe that we are living as a part of a different world as a result of what God has done through Jesus. It's fascinating that in that Genesis account, after, um, man, after like uh, the, the part that we read, God creates people and he puts them in, in, uh, in this, this garden paradise and he gives them a job, like they're to be his image bearers. Like they are there to rule and to reign. It's this priestly language, this kingly language, that they're to rule and reign on God's behalf, that they are to rule in his image, to spread uh, and to demonstrate his goodness to the world around them. That Eden, the Garden of Eden, wasn't the whole world. It was just a specific location where heaven and earth overlapped and, uh, and there was beauty and flourishing. And God's like charge to humanity is take this, this Eden and take it everywhere. Like bring about that human flourishing. And the, as the account unfolds, like humans failed at that. But just like in creation, that was humanity's role. In the new creation that has been unleashed by Jesus, that is this new humanity's role. And the new humanity are those of us who are followers of Jesus. So John wants us to know right off the bat, man, that what he's about to unpack as we go throughout these 21 uh, chapters of his gospel, that he wants us to see that there's a new creation that is unfolding, that is here in the person of Jesus. And so he says, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word. Um, it's this Greek word, logos. It's where we get the word logic. So in the beginning was the logos, was the logic. And uh, to different people at that time, it had different meanings. So there's kind of two groups of people that are going to be reading uh, John's gospel. You have Jewish people and then non-Jewish people, the Gentiles or the Greeks. The Jewish people, the word to them, it was like God's, God's power working in the world. And so whenever the creation account, God speaks, it's through his words that creation comes into existence. And we read in uh, the prophet Isaiah that God's word goes out and it doesn't return void, like it does something in the world. So it's God's power working out in the world. Um, it's also in the Jewish reader's mind, the, the logos is attached to the idea of the wisdom of God. You read through Proverbs and in Proverbs 8, it talks about creation again, but uh, it, it says that it's by God's wisdom that he created in the beginning. And so it carries this idea for the Jews of the, the power and the wisdom of God that, that's working in the world. Now, so the Greeks, the idea of logos, it meant like the reason or the stability, the purpose, the meaning, the logic, as I said, uh, the logic behind the universe, like reason and logic and uh, on a cosmic scale, the fabric of the universe, that this idea that there are just certain things that are, that are true. Like nobody had to decide it was true. It just is. It's just the way things work. You know, things as we are able to poke and prod and study uh, the, the, the cosmos today, we would call like, you know, the laws of mathematics and the laws of physics and gravity. Like there's certain things. It's like, that's just the reality of the universe and no one had to decide that. No one had to decide gravity was true. It just is. No one has to decide two plus two is four. It just is. There, there's certain things that are baked into the fabric of the universe, this reason or logic. Uh, and as far back as like the fifth century BC, there were philosophers talking about this, that even though on a human level, the world can be chaotic, 
like humans are chaotic and disorganized and it seems just crazy. Uh, and so like there's chaos in our lives. But again, on a universal scale, on a cosmic level, there's order. Like there's reason, there's logic, there's meaning. It's predictable. Uh, this is how humans are able to survive. Seasons come and go. There's a time to harvest. There's a time to plant. Uh, there's daily rhythms. The sun comes up, the sun goes down. There's a time to rest, and, and there's a time to work. And so it's, they, they begin to see that there's this, there's this logos behind the universe. There's a reason and a logic and an order. And so there's this idea that in the beginning, there's the power and the wisdom of God, and there's also this, this kind of reason. There's meaning. There's purpose behind the universe. It's not just random uh, that there's a meaning and purpose and significance to the world and to history and to the universe, which is a massive deal because that means there's reason and order and purpose, uh, not just on a cosmic scale, but also in your life and in mine. We're not just, we're not just here. It's, it's not, we don't have to live a purposeless, just kind of uh, nihilistic kind of existence. No, there's reason and meaning and purpose. In the beginning was the word. And then he gives some clarification around this word, this logos. He says, th this word was with God. And so on one hand, the word is distinct or separate from God. But then at the same time, and the word was God. So at the same time, the logos is with God and was God. The, uh, it's distinct, but also the same. And we start talking about these kind of things. And these are the things that like, make our brains hurt when we think about them. But the logic, the reason, the meaning, the knowledge behind the universe is separate from God. So it's like, it can be seen as like an attribute of God. But then you can also talk about it as being uh, God himself. And John is, he's kind of creating this category in our minds uh, of things about God that can be distinct, but yet the same. Um, and this is going to be really important for what we're going to talk about in here in just a second, this idea of the Trinity, and this isn't actually, this, wasn't, this didn't just come about with Jesus in, uh, here in the New Testament. The, kind of the seedbed for this way of thinking is found in the Old Testament. You read the Old Testament authors, and there are times when they'll talk about like an attribute of God, and they'll use uh, a language around it that makes it seem like, okay, this is a thing that is distinct from God, his wisdom or his power or whatever. But then like in the very next sentence, they'll use it in a way that makes it sound like, wait, now it doesn't sound like it's distinct from God. It sounds like it actually is, like God's wisdom is God. And you're like, wait, what, what, what are you doing? And we begin to get this kind of multifaceted uh, picture of like, who is this God? And so John is tapping into that idea that the word was with God and the word was God. And then in verse two, he says, he, he. And so now it's not just some impersonal word, he personifies it that this word is a person. And we're not going to get that far today, but as you read through the prologue, you get towards the end, we read that, okay, the word became flesh, that, 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 that this uh, divine power and wisdom of God, this reason and logic, meaning behind the universe, that this logos actually came into human form. It became human. The word became flesh. And then a little bit later, we, he puts a name to it. In verse 17, John chapter 1, verse 17, he says uh, that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so he identifies who this word is. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, and he, Jesus, was with God in the beginning. And all things were created through him. Apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. And so here's this idea again. 
John says, okay, he, I identified who it is. It's this Jesus who I'm going to tell you about. He was with God, so he's separate from him. But at the same time, everything was created through him. And so he's the same as him. Uh, because in, in Jewish thought, like, there is only one creator, God. Like, there, there's not multiple creators. We actually talked about this several months ago when we, if you were with us for our Supernatural series, it's like, there's a whole lot of spiritual beings, but there's only one true God, one creator God, one God of God, Lord of Lords. There's only one creator God. And here John is saying that this word, this, this word become flesh, this Jesus is that creator God, but he's also distinct. <laughs> it's like, what? I don't, I don't understand. And this is something that people have been trying to get their, their heads around for, I mean, thousands of years. But this is kind of like the, the, the beginnings of what throughout Christian history has been known as the Trinity. Um, that Orthodox Christianity, so or, by Orthodox meaning like what Christians have believed for thousands of years to say this is core to our belief and to, you know, to, to what it means to be a Christian. Um, there are some outliers that step outside of this, but we wouldn't consider them to be Orthodox. But Orthodox Christian thought um, has always taught that God is three in one. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's like a category breaker for us. Again, we can't get our minds around it. That God is three yet one. He's eternally uh, one, one God, but he is also eternally distinct. <laughs> the Godhead, three persons, one God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There is unity within God, but also a plurality within God, this idea of the Trinity. And so this is where this idea is coming from. The God is three and yet one, and John is making the claim that this Jesus that I'm about to tell you about, he is God the Son. He is God in the flesh, the creator God. Now again, that is kind of something that people will throw out there as like a gotcha, um, but it's not very intellectually honest. It's, it's kind of, uh, it's not well thought out. I mean, I'm not trying to criticize, but it's, it's just, this is the reality. They'll, they'll say, well, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God. This is actually true. If we add the caveat, Jesus never claimed to be God in the way that we think he should have. He never said the word like in English, I am G-O-D God. But he did claim it over and over and over and over again um, in the way that made sense to his audience. And John presents this in his gospel. Again, these are some of the themes and the ideas that we're going to unpack as we work through the gospel together. So there's these I am statements of Jesus in the gospel of John. Uh, and I am is the name that God gives himself. So in Israel's history, uh, God speaks to Moses to the burning bush to say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rescue my people out of slavery in Egypt. You're going to lead them. And Moses is like, but, but, but what if they don't believe me? Like, who am I going to say sent me? Like, what's your name? And God says, tell them that I am sent you. That I am who I am. That, that I, I was who I was. I will be who I will be. This idea of like, I, I am the eternally existing God. I just, I am who I am. And so that's, man, they see that as the name of God. And so Jesus uses this idea. And he, gets, he catches a lot of flack for it. There's this time where he's talking to some religious leaders. And they're like, wait, you can't be that old. How do you say you know Abraham? You're not old enough. And Jesus says this. He says, before Abraham was, I am. It's like, yeah, I know, I've existed eternally, I am. There's another time when Jesus is teaching, he says, I and the Father are one, and people get so ticked about this because they say it's blasphemous to claim that you are God, so they pick up rocks to try and stone him. There's another time where Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so over and over and over again, there is this claim in the Gospel of John that, that Jesus is the unique Son of God. He is God in the flesh, God the Son, God uh, become flesh, dwelling 
among us. And so John is setting us up for just these, these huge categories that we're going to explore throughout the rest of this gospel. That this is a story of new creation. That, this, that there's this word, this power, this wisdom, this reason, logic behind the universe, and it's become flesh in the person of Jesus. And there's a new creation unfolding, and this Jesus is, in fact, God. Because only God has the ability to create. And just so just as Jesus in the beginning, all things were created through him. Apart from him, nothing was created, has been created. He has the authority to bring about new creation. And that's what he has done. And as we close out the section that we're going to be in um, today, John kind of narrows in and he gets around to talking uh, about something that really impacts us and where I want to land things today. So from here he moves on and he says, in him was life. In Jesus was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and yet the darkness did not overcome it. You see, Jesus, or John now portrays Jesus as speaking to and entering into the need that we have as humanity. What we need, what you need, what I need more than anything else in our human existence to, to live and to thrive and to flourish and to, to, to experience life is we need a light to bring us life. See, our, our problem as, as humans, as individuals, as people, our problem isn't necessarily that, we are, um, that we're dumb our problem is not that we're uninformed. Our problem is not that we vote the wrong way or that we have the wrong kind of ideology. Our problem at its core is that we're blind. Our problem um, is, is that we can't see. We are in the, the dark. We can't see. Like We think we know what's going on in the world around us, but we can't really see what's really going on. We think we know what the solutions are to things, but we don't really see. We think we know who Jesus is, but we can't really see who he is. Our problem is we are in the dark. It's like, uh, like the Apostle Paul uses this imagery of we're groping around in the darkness. It's like you walk into uh, an, a, a room, the lights are off, it's pitch black, there's no light coming in. You've never been in this room before, and so you're feeling on the wall, you know, for trying to find the light switch, and you're groping around in the darkness. That is our problem. Our problem is we are in the darkness, and not only are we in the darkness, but we like it that way. In chapter 3, we'll get to this, I don't know, a couple of weeks, a couple of months. Chapter 3, verse 19, John says, here's the verdict, that the light had come into the world, but mankind, they loved the darkness. See, our, our problem is, our problem is we, we're in the dark, we're blind, and a lot of times we like it that way. So we can't see the, the, the light. We, 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 can't see, we can't see the one, Jesus, who's come to bring us life. And life is what we need. It, this idea of life is, is the word zoe, um, and it's, it's not just like life, like biological life, but it's the idea of like true life, like this, this, the, the, the essence, the meaning of what life really is. This is another theme that John comes back to throughout his gospel, you know, John three sixteen, right? That, that, that God so loved the world, he gave his only son, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal 
life. That John uh, records Jesus saying, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I've come that you may have life and have it to the fullest. It's the idea of abundant life, eternal life, the life that satisfies the deepest longings of our soul and who we are, the, um, the, the life that allows us to truly be what humanity is meant to be. That life had come into the world. And that life was the light of all mankind. He says that light, it shines in the darkness. Notice it's, it's continuous. It's shine, it shines. It's not that it shined. It's not when Jesus came into the world, the light shined, but it's that the light continues to shine in the darkness. Like it's shining over and over and over. That Jesus shined in the darkness 2,000 years ago. He's shining in the darkness today. That Christianity has been God. Uh, it's like going into a dark room and he put a, a lamp in the center of the room and turned the lamp on. And now all of a sudden, because the lamp is on, because the light is shining in the darkness, it lights up the darkness. That's great. It drives some of the darkness away. And that's one of the things it does when you're close to that lamp. It's bright and it's awesome. But also what it does is it lights up the rest of the room so you can see what's really going on. Uh, Like the light shining in the darkness reveals just how bad things are. It reveals kind of the corners where it's still kind of dark and there's cobwebs and there's other junk in the room. It gives us light to see by. And that light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. The darkness, even though we're going to go on to read, like I said, that, that we love darkness, and so often we choose darkness over the light, no matter what, the, that the light cannot be overcome by the darkness. The Greek word katalambano is what we translate overcome, and it has a couple of different meanings. On one hand, it means to understand or to grasp, um, and some of your translations may, may actually say that, that the darkness did not understand it. But then there's another ma- uh, meaning, which is kind of rendered here in the CSB, that means uh, to, to seize or to overtake or to suppress. And so there's kind of this twofold thing that the darkness... It doesn't understand the light, but at the same time, it can't overcome the light. There's this beautiful truth that the gospel, the message of Jesus, that that this is a new creation kind of thing. This is a new creation story, and there's a light that has come into the world, in the darkness of the world, the world around us, not the new creation world, but the old world. The darkness, it doesn't understand the light. It doesn't understand the gospel. It doesn't make sense. This is why the Apostle Paul says that the gospel is foolishness to the Gentiles. That the message of Jesus, of sacrifice and love and submitting to him and, and, and you know, dying to yourself like that, that, people look at that and they say, I don't understand it. That's stupid. That makes no sense. The light or the, the darkness doesn't understand the light. But at the same time, no matter what happens, even with the lack of understanding, no matter how bad things get, even when it may seem like at times the darkness of the world is winning, the darkness will not, it cannot overcome, overpower, it cannot seize, it cannot suppress the light that has come into the world and the light that continues to shine. And This is where we're going to wrap up today and this is where I want to leave us. I want to zoom in for a minute and come in from kind of this big picture cosmic level and the word became flesh and, and you know, God is the word, the word's with God, this, the light shining in the darkness. Let's, let's kind of zoom in for a minute and leave us with this thought of, so what about for you and what about for me and the light shining in the darkness? The question is, if the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it as it relates to me and my life and my soul, is the light shining and shining in and through me. 
Is the light shining in me? Or have I misunderstood it? Have I tried to suppress it? You know, maybe you're someone who's like, yeah, I've, I've misunderstood the light. Maybe for you, that's because you've chosen to. You're like, I, I don't want to understand this Jesus thing. I'm going to paint a picture of this even though I'm not actually, like, I'm not even researching it for myself. Or maybe for you, you've misunderstood the light of Jesus because of a bad church experience or a bad religious experience growing up. And uh, there was, man, a, a church where there was pain or abuse or just a bad picture of Jesus. And so you have a misunderstanding of the light. Will, would you be willing to say, hey, I want to understand and then make a decision from there. Or maybe you're someone who says, no, I understand it, but I'm, I'm just suppressing it. I'm suppressing the light. Like, I know what it means, but I would rather not live this out. I know, I, I understand the light, but I'm going to try to push it down. I want to try to get away with a version of faith that says, I believe in Jesus, but I don't actually live in light of new creation, in light of what he's done. I prefer to live in the darkness. Is the light shining in you? And then is the light shining through you? Are you shining in the darkness? Because this incredible thing happens when we, when that happens, we experience the light of Jesus as he invites us to then be his kind of vessel and his conduit through which he shines to the world. He talks about this in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, listen, you are the light of the world. And nobody lights a lamp and puts it underneath a bowl. No, you light a lamp and you put it on a stand and then it gives light for everyone else to see. And so as we think about just this, what John is communicating here, light coming into the world, is the light shining in you? Is the light shining through you? John, in just these five verses, has introduced us to the one, Jesus, who can create light from the darkness in the world and also light out of the darkness of our souls. He's declaring a message that says, listen, light has come into the world and there is a dawn of new creation. There is a new world that is unfolding around us. Will you be a part of it? And that's where we're going to leave things. We'll pick this up next week.